It is good to know who you belong to. You may be seated. I remember, this is not in my sermon, but I just, it just came to me as, as I was walking up here thinking about those words, and I was on my way to my high school graduation, and my mother was, actually I was on the way home, talking about the speaker and what he'd said and what he hadn't said, you know how people do in the post-sermon evaluation, which is a lot like what a graduation speech is. I just remember her saying, you just need to remember who you belong to, whose you are, and never forget it. And so I'm grateful that God is the one to whom we belong. Well, welcome today. Uh, we are going to continue our GOAT series, um, our greatest of all time. And today we're going to be looking at the greatest couple of all time. And I thought about using as an example one of the couples from our church staff. Then I realized we have no perfect marriages, of course. I will say a couple things about our church staff marriages. We all, we all have a good sense of humor, and we have a deep appreciation for the strengths of our spouses. There is no doubt about it. Uh, and I will say this, if you want to get to know your staff members better, you can, MB and I, Mary Beth and I, Clark and Nalva, Paula and Peter, Jonathan and Sonia, Sylvia and Carlos, we all have some pretty funny and some pretty meaningful stories to share. It's a miracle that we are all here, much less all here together and married. Um, and if you want the long-term marriage viewpoint, well, you can just stop and ask Bob and Judy Bushman, or you might ask Clayton and Ellen Teague, or, or Allison and Claire. Claire, I don't know how you do it, honey. I just, I'm, just so, I'm, I'm, I'm just so amazed. You know, thanks to the fairy tales and the romance novels and to Hollywood, most Americans have an exceptionally sentimental, uh, romantic, and yes, we should say it this way, somewhat unrealistic understanding of what love is about, about how marriage works, about how family works. Even Christians get many of their ideas about marriage and romance more from culture than from the Bible. And it's interesting to me that many Christian couples, they, they tend toward an idealistic view of marriage, how it's going to be, sometimes how easy that's going to be, while secular sources tend to be somewhat cynical and dubious uh, about the whole thing. The reality is that this book, the Bible, is actually not particularly sentimental when it comes to the subject of marriage and family. It's honest, brutally so at times. It, it shows positive and negative things. It lets us see a lot. So if you want to take a serious, in-depth look at the subject of marriage, family, couples, all that kind of thing, uh, the Bible is a great place to go to see both strengths and weaknesses, and I think it's because the Bible is using everything to point us to Christ, which, by the way, is a needy step for all of us, whether we are married, single, young, old, whatever it might be, no matter what your Facebook status is, necessity of Christ gets pointed to. Now, there have been a lot of books, a lot of sermons 
on the great couples, the famous couples of the Bible, Brian Harbour, Tim Keller, to whom I'm particularly indebted today. Many, many others have, have taken on this subject. I own a bunch of those. You want to come to my office, I'll, you want to read this, this topic can interest you, be glad to loan you some. But what I knew without even looking at the table of contents of those books again was to, re- I knew the couples they were going to go to, and you can probably think of them too, right? The first one, right? Adam and Eve. Shortly thereafter, you get to Abraham and Sarah, you get to Isaac, Rebecca, you get to Jacob and Rachel, you got David and Bathsheba, that's a whole other story, Mary and Joseph, Anna and Simeon, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, then there's always Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and see, now some of you are starting to say, well, whoa, 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 that last one you threw in. No, no, not just the last one. Practically all of them not only have some positive things going, but there's some negative lessons in there as well, and we do well to learn. Some of those couples I mentioned are really famous, and some are kind of infamous. And what I love about the Bible is that it's, is that it's open uh, about these kinds of things. There are examples of what one should do, and there are some very strong examples of what one should not do. So today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go for one of those twofer lessons, two lessons for the cost of one, a marriage that is both famous and infamous, a famous and infamous love story. Famous because of the romantic side of it, the the sacrifice you see, the the genuine sentiment of love. At the same time, the story is infamous because of the mistakes that are made, the twists and turns uh, that are in the story. So if you have your Bible, you may want to open it to Genesis 29. Now, let me just tell you now, we have a lot of verses to cover, so I'm not going to be reading the passage. You are welcome to be looking at it. I'm going to tell the story from the passage, much like Jesus would have done. He told stories all the time. That's what we're going to do. I will say, if you are a disciple of Jesus who takes Bible studies seriously, you may want to know and understand that the echoes of the story that we're going to look at today are not just found in in Genesis 29, but in 30, 32, moving on all the way actually to the very last chapter, chapter 50, a lot of different lessons. We don't have time to look through all those passages today, but we're going to follow the story of this couple, which is kind of not really a couple, you'll understand as we get going. But Genesis 29, verses 15 to 35, that's our key passage. So if you want to be reading that through, looking that over, calling it up on your phone so you can kind of scan through it, you're welcome to do so. It is the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Laban and a bunch of kids. So before we get going too far, let's remember where Jacob is coming from. Jacob, his father was Isaac. His grandfather was Abraham, the father of the faithful, considered to be so by Jews and Muslims and Christians. Jacob is not only important to Judaism for being one of the the great forefathers, but also to Christianity because it was through Jacob's descendants, of course, because it came from Abraham to Isaac to then Jacob, that the Messiah would come, chosen by God to be the avenue, the earthly avenue through which uh, Jesus would come to us, the ancestors of Christ. That's the good news of his family heritage. But there's another heritage related to Jacob. 
Because although his family was blessed, it was also filled with suffering and confusion and struggle because of the wrong choices they made, some of which had generational consequences. Now, a couple of weeks ago, you may remember, we looked at the great blessing, and we looked at how it came to Abraham and was passed down to succeeding generations, but then came to Isaac and Rebekah the birth of twin boys. You remember? Esau and Jacob came along, and it began a time of conflict. It started from birth and went on throughout most of their lives. And it is in that branch of the story that Jacob breaks off on that the story of Jacob and Rachel comes along, one of the great love stories of the Bible. Uh, Jacob has, I, I think you, you have to read the whole story behind it. According to the story, Jacob is sent off to look for a wife, first by his mother, then his father. Um, there's also this element, as you know, that he's still on the run from Esau, <laughs> He's still, the whole point of his mother sending him was she said, you know what, it'd be a good time for you to find a wife away from here. Because I can still see the look in your brother Esau's life. He's, she says this in the Bible. He's dealing with his grief over you stealing his birthright by planning your death. This is the word. So he goes off to hunt for a wife in these happy circumstances. That, that, that is a little piece of information you ought to tuck away anyway. Sounds a little bit like a soap opera. My brother wants to kill me. I'm going to run off and find a wife somewhere. He, he leaves quickly. He has the clothes on his back, maybe a little other stuff. He's, he's on the run. By the time he comes to the territory that belongs to his uncle Laban, he really doesn't have a lot to offer. I mean, he's a dust-covered, wandering a homeless, birthright-stealing, brother-running-away-from kind of guy. His life is a wreck. This entire story, as I mentioned, is from Genesis 29 through chapter 50. But rather than skip through it all, I'm going to hit the highlights. Maybe you remember all this about Jacob, but if you're relatively new to the Old Testament or to the Bible, this might help you. So Jacob and Rachel, who are meeting at the beginning of this story, this love story we're going to look at, this greatest couple of all time. They were actually, you guessed it, cousins. No, and I didn't pick them because I'm from the hills of Virginia, but that's another story. Their cousins, Jacob's mother, Rachel's father, were siblings. And after he meets the family, uh, Jacob makes a deal with Rachel's father. His name was Laban. Seven years of labor in return for Rachel. How romantic he's going to work. Seven years pass. Jacob uh, says, it's time for me to get Rachel. Laban says, of course, throws a big party. They celebrate this wedding. On the wedding night, Laban sends in his older daughter, Leah, into the tent with a drunken Jacob. And so when Jacob awakes in the morning, he learns he has been tricked, and now he is married to Leah and not to Rachel. That just complicated the story of the greatest couple of all time, because there was never a time in their life when it was just the two of them. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. So then, in the hubbub, Jacob has to work another seven years for Laban so he can get Rachel uh, to marry. So he's got two wives, Leah and Rachel, but he loves Rachel more, the Bible says. 
Rachel, therefore, ends up childless for several years. Leah, the Bible says, begins to, she, her womb is open. She begins to have children, which you know how important that was in the biblical time. Later on, Rachel is also blessed, has several children. Then there's this event where Jacob uh, wrestles uh, with God, wrestles with an angel. Uh, he, he becomes uh, Israel. They change his name from Jacob to uh, Israel. He wrestled with God for his blessing. And you'll remember from our previous talk about the great promise, the great blessing, that really Jacob was wrestling and wouldn't let go because he was looking for the blessing that he'd been looking for his whole life. You remember? He was always the son who never felt good enough, the second place son. He wanted to be. So he deceived his father. He robbed his brother looking for that approval, looking to be blessed. Still didn't find it. He's wrestling with God. He won't let go until he gets blessed. It's, it's, it's a whole part of his life story, searching for that peace, searching for the blessing. But not all is smooth in Jacob's household. In addition to all these children and things going on, Rachel, while she cannot have children at first, repeats the sin of her grandmother, Sarah. Remember her? She sent in her handmaiden to Abraham. When she couldn't have children fast enough to suit herself, she sent in her handmaiden to be with Abraham. Rachel repeats the same mistake. And so they have several children, the handmaiden, Rachel, uh, Leah, Leah's handmaiden. Uh, the whole thing becomes this kind of convoluted mess. And in addition to all of that, while Rachel is having her children, she gives birth to Joseph. Now, Joseph becomes the famous one, the coat of many colors, the one sold, the prince of Egypt, had a Disney movie made him. Maybe you've heard of him. Then, then the next brother, the next child to Rachel is her last. She gives birth to Benjamin, but in childbirth, Rachel dies. In total, you have Jacob having 12 sons with four different women. When he dies, he is taken to the place where Abraham was buried, fulfilling a promise that he had made to his father, and his family mourns him for 70 days. Now, in those few minutes, that's the summary of Jacob's life. So why are we talking about him being part of the greatest couple of all time? Well, part because I think if you really want to look at the greatest couple of the Bible, you're not just looking at the happiest. You're not looking at the easiest road. You're looking at the one from whom you can learn both positive and negative lessons, things to stay out of and things to be looking for. And that's where we're going to look at. So what I want us to do is jump back into Jacob's life story and focus on the details of the marriage. So you will remember we said he was running away from his brother, sent by his parents to the land of his mother's relatives to find a wife. He comes to the land of his uncle Laban. He sees Rachel uh, at the well. That, that's the whole story of how they meet. Uh, goes to meet his uncle Laban. It doesn't take Laban long to realize that Jacob is, how shall we put it, management material. He says, I need to have this kid around. Uh, and so he says, you know, I, I could really use Jacob's help as long as the price isn't too high. So he goes to Jacob and Laban says, Jacob, what is it you really want out of life? And Jacob, like many of you fine husbands out there with stars in his eyes, he said, 
Rachel. And Laban knew he had him right where he wanted him. Because what we discover is that Jacob, whose nickname is the trickster, the usurper, we're going to discover that Jacob's got nothing on Uncle Laban. Uncle Laban's a lot older. He'd been tricking people a lot longer. And Jacob is about to get schooled in what it means to trick people. He's going to learn some hard lessons. So Laban says, sure, sure, you can have Rachel. You got to work for her seven years. It's true love. Jacob says, deal, done deal. You got it. Seven years goes by. He says, it's time to pay up. Laban says, of course, they have this wedding. Now, what we don't understand, some of us, is that in these days, a wedding was about a week long. These people are, are partying. Now, Jacob in particular is happy because remember his childhood story, right? What is he looking for? He's looking for a blessing. He's looking for happiness. He's looking for something that's been missing. And he's found Rachel and he thinks, now I'm going to get that thing that I need. I'm going, I'm going to find that thing that, that fulfills me. Something is going right in my life and this is going to make up for all these problems I've always had in life when I was always in second place. And, and he's so happy and they begin to to party and have a little feast and everybody gets drunk and it comes to the time where they have the bride coming in all veiled and they embrace and they get married and they're sent into the tent and they go to bed together and and here's what the Hebrew says about the next morning. (laughs) It says in the next morning, behold, when morning came, it was Leah. Now, if, if, if you're Leah, that has to hurt. That has to hurt. But that's the message that gets sent here at the very beginning. And C.S. Lewis, who was no slouch at thinking, a great philosopher, great teacher, he said, you know, he said, he said set aside Leah, the person, for a minute. He said, think about how we put all our hopes and expectations about what somebody else is going to do for us. See, this is the danger of a wedding where you say, they're going to complete me. I'm I'm not trying to mock. I'm not trying to run down the fact that in marriage, we both feed off of each other, that there's a, that's absolutely true. But when you look at the other person to make up for all these deep issues you've got, you are in deep, deep trouble. A healthy marriage is most likely to evolve when two people who are psychologically spiritually and physically healthy, mentally healthy, heart right, are able to marry one another. When you got to depend on the other person to make you right, that's a problem. C.S. Lewis says, this is what we think about the world, that if I just had this thing, if this thing over here would go my way, if I got that job, if I got this education, everything would be perfect. And you know, he says, what happens to us? We get that thing from the world, and what happens when we wake up out of our stupor? We discover it's just Leah. (laughs) It's not what we thought it was when we were dreaming about it. It's not what we thought it was when our mind was clogged over with alcohol or materialism or whatever it might be. We want this thing, we want this thing, and we find out this thing is not enough. He says this is kind of symbolic for that whole experience. Now, you got to understand, this, this really sets off a rocket, right? Jacob goes to Laban. He says, why have you done this to me? He's all upset. And, and Laban's like, 
What, who, me? What are you upset about? This is the custom. Don't you know that the older daughter always gets married before the younger one? Acts like you should have expected this all along. You go back and read his words. Laban's very careful in how he talks about handing over his daughter to be married. He was tricky, and he tricked Jacob. And so Jacob, of course, is all emotionally torn. Now, what do I do? And once again, Laban thinks, I got you right where I want you. I got you by the throat. I got you right where I want you. He says, oh, you can still have Rachel. It's just another seven years. And, you know, uh, this time I'll give her to her in the front end, but you still got to work for me seven years. So this is what happens. All this mess happens because of the greed and manipulation in a couple of deceiving men. And poor Leah is thrown into hell. Now, she is referred to as having weak eyes. We don't know exactly what that means. There's, there's no clear understanding. Don't know if she was cross-eyed. Don't know if she had a, a weak lid. We, we don't know. But here's the fact of the matter. Judging from her character and everything else we see in the story, she could have been just fine. She might have been as a single woman, or she might have made her own way and found the right man for her. But because of the manipulation of this, because she was perceived as not being marketable, this is what happened to her. She's stuck in a marriage that's a mess. And we say, well, aren't you glad that doesn't happen today? We're beyond all that. Really? Are we beyond all that? Is our society really all that different in the way we treat people, and particularly women, as property? We know that the whole human trafficking piece is related to the devaluing of people, but particularly to women. Leah might have been able to tough it out as a single woman, but because of these guys, she's now in a situation where, look at it this way, she's married to a guy who doesn't really love her. And you might say, well, you know what? That's not all that unusual. There's a lot of people in marriages, and they say, well, you know, I, I, thought, I thought we were in love. You know, we got married. It seemed like a good match. It's okay. No big deal. That's bad enough. She's in a marriage where her husband doesn't love her. What's worse is that the person that he does love is in the marriage with them because now Rachel's in there too. And I don't know about you, what you know about family dynamics, but the fact that it's also her younger sister who is the one who's keeping her from marital happiness. Leah is in a living hell. Not the first nor the last woman to suffer in this way. And these days, sometimes it's men who suffer in similar kinds of relationships. I was reading all this and just thinking, isn't it funny how the world changes and not so much? It, it, it's uh, kind of a bizarre what happens in our world. And if you look at chapter 29, if you've got your Bible open, as I suggested earlier, and you look toward the end of the verses there, it's some of the saddest verses you'll read in the Bible or in any romantic literature about the broken heart. Because here's what you've got going on. Leah starts having children, and she names every child. And after that child is born, she says basically to herself, now maybe my husband will love me. 
Now my life will have meaning because I've done this thing that he expects, that society expects, that is supposed to, to work. And so she names her for Reuben. You know what Reuben means? It means I'm seen. You ever been in a relationship where people just looked right past you? Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's somebody you hope to be in a relationship with and you can't get them to notice you. Maybe it's some other thing, but people act like you're not there. And so, yeah, it happens every day of the week. You can be widowed, divorced, you can be young or old. Uh, you know, you don't fit the profile, you get looked past. That's what Re Reuben means, I'm seen. She's thinking, now I'm going to be seen. And she discovers she's not. So then she has Simeon, and Simeon means I'm heard. Finally, he's going to listen to me, he's going to notice me, and, and he doesn't notice her. Then she has Levi. Levi means I'm attached, we're connected. And she discovers thinking to herself, maybe now he will leave, you know, in a sense, just the attachment to Rachel, and he will cleave to me as his wife. And it doesn't happen. She keeps saying, surely my husband will love me now. And it just doesn't happen. And then she gives birth toward the end of the chapter to the last one, to Judah. She gives birth to the son, and she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And she names him Judah. She's praising God, God my Savior. And she realizes that bearing sons were never going to secure Jacob's love for her, and bearing sons was never going to give her the meaning in life she was really looking for. Oddly enough, she's married to a man who is still searching for meaning in life, the deceiver, Jacob. This is what's going on. And finally she says, you know what? I'm going to have to find my peace, my hope, my praise in God. Now, that's the story of what's going on. And in the meantime, Rachel has some children. The handmaidens have some children. Joseph comes along. Benjamin comes along. Rachel, a lot of stuff going on. But if you look at this part of the story in Genesis 29, six quick lessons. And if you've got your bulletin, you'll notice on the back, I left your room to jot down the six lessons so we can do this quickly. Three are bad news lessons, the negative pieces. Three are the positive. We're going to start with the negative and end with the positive, okay? So here's the first piece of bad news. You don't just do sin. Sin does a number on you. You see, sometimes we think, well, if I just do this thing, I'm just committing a sin, an act. But here's what happens. When we go down that road, oftentimes what we begin to do is we begin to release what will turn into a devastating effect, a devastating power that changes life indefinitely and sometimes other people's lives as well. So think back with me for a minute, right? Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob's parents, they have twins. And what does good old daddy do? He practices the sin of favoritism. And he prefers Isaac to Jacob. You might say he set this whole wheel in motion, a father's decision a father's relationship with his children, the family dynamic. And it affected Jacob in such a way that Jacob then turns out to deceive his father. And what does he do when he ends up with two wives? Well, he favors one. You'd have thought he'd have learned something about favoritism when he was on the negative end. But he turns around and does it with Rachel 
against Leah. Then what happens? Leah's children hate Rachel's children. How do we know that? Who got sold into slavery in Egypt? Joseph. Whose child was he? Rachel's. Whose children sold him into that slavery? Leah's. Who started all that? Jacob. Isaac goes back. The family dynamic. Jacob himself, you know, it's part of the biblical story, but there's also some emotional justice. He, he gets put through hell, the hell that he's put Leah through with his favoritism. Now he goes through it because he hears that his son has been carried off. His son is dead, is what the brothers eventually tell him, right? He has grief that lasts for years. Sound familiar? Isaac, Jacob, Leah, it just is terrible. And it affects how he relates to all his other children. He becomes very protective of Benjamin, the last one born to Rachel, of course. Now, I, I point all that out about the, the systems of families just to warn you, but also to say, don't make the mistake that some do with the Old Testament passage that confuses people who, you know, touch the Bible once in a while and then they think they understand it all. When the Bible says that the sins of the fathers are visited against his children or upon his children, and you might say, well, that's not fair that the, that the children get blamed for the father's sins. That's not what the Bible's saying. It's talking about how the effect of their sin rolls down through the generations succeeding generations of family. You're not paying for your grandfather's sins. What we are doing with, dealing with is the consequences of the sin that follows their deeds, the habits, the practices, the character. Those are individual things, but then there are also family traditions. There are experiences, and there's the influence of your forebears upon you, just like Isaac influenced Jacob. Today, psychologists refer to these as family systems theory. They have them in the church. They talk about the church system theory and how the ways we relate to one another are so affected by what we bring in with us. What we see as we look in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all made decisions and took actions which influenced the way their descendants lived, acted, understood, and interpreted their reality. This was bad news for them because this was sin deceit, greed, fear, favoritism, and you see it repeated over and over in their family's life cycle. So that's a, don't, don't think, well, I'll just dabble in sin over here. It's just this one thing. It becomes a thing that can affect so many more. Second piece of bad news lessons that we get here, see if this rings true for anything you've ever walked through, that disappointment and unmet expectations fill this earthly life. Genesis 29, 25, I've quoted to you a couple of times, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. This was the warning of what happens when we build all of our hope upon this other thing. As I talked about with C.S. Lewis, he's saying we start putting our hopes, our longings. Basically what he's saying is they're never satisfied. You ever notice that? You have that longing, that thing, you, that itch you want to scratch, and you chase it as best you can, and you think you're just about there, and you find you just can't quite reach that itch. 
the solution that you thought was going to solve it, that next job, that certain level of income, living in a particular neighborhood, being in a relationship with a particular person, that that was going to fix it for you in the morning, it's always Leah. And Tim Keller says that there are only four ways to respond to the disappointments we experience in life. We can blame what we have or who we have. So it might be our job or our spouse or whatever, but we can blame others. Of course, we could always choose to blame ourselves. Many people go the generic route and they just blame life. Life done me wrong, you know. And then the fourth option, Keller says, is that we can blame the theory of reality and choose to believe that we were made for something beyond what this world offers. He says what that means is it gives you four potential responses. If you choose to blame others, you you become a fool. If you choose to blame yourself for everything, you just become a self-loathing hater. If you choose to blame life, you basically just become a cynic. He said, if you choose to say it's really about the view of reality, and I I somehow think I was born for more than this, he said, you might just be a Christian. (laughs) You might just be a Christian. Because we have to understand, you want to be a mature Christian, you got to remember this. Life will disappoint you. The disciple is not above his master. Jesus' life was not a bed of roses. We are to be in the world, but we are not of the world. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. The Bible talks about this, this difference. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulations but don't fear, I have overcome the world. See, this is what's different. We were made for something beyond this world, but if you just get focused on this world, this world, this world, guess what? In the morning, say it with me, it's Leah. It's just Leah. I had a coach when I was in sports growing up. He said, you can be a winner or you can be a whiner. And I said, you know, that's kind of simplistic. It may work work in in the locker room, but it doesn't go far enough to really teach you about life. Here's what I would say to you about life. It all comes down to whether you're going to be a complainer or whether you're going to learn Christ centered contentment. Because you know what? You don't get stuck being a complainer if in Christ you have found contentment. No matter what comes, we have Christ. No matter what comes, we can be in the family of Christ. Although it is sad and ironic to me that people choose to cut themselves off from the body of Christ, usually happens when one of us lets somebody else down in some way. But the truth is that more often it's based on anger and disappointment and unmet expectations. You can blame others, but it's more about ourselves. Christ wants us to learn how to communicate, to have courage, to live with contentment, to live with compassion. Those are the Christian habits that change things. Well, the last piece of bad news, and then we're going to get some good news. The last piece of our good news, and I hesitate to share this, I don't want anybody to freak out, but here's the truth. Oftentimes, we make our own lives worse by idolizing family. Because you remember, Leah in keeping with the traditional family values of her time, she said, if I can just have children, if I can just bear sons in particular, I'm going to secure uh, meaning in life. I'm going to get love from my husband. But it didn't work. 
Jacob's favoritism with Rachel showed Leah that her idolatry of the family, of thinking that I can do it this way with my, and, and that's going to solve, it just made it worse because she would do all those things and it wouldn't have the result that she thought. He sees me. He hears me. We're attached. It never happened. There is a, a, a problem of family dysfunction, and oftentimes we bring that into church life. It turns out, as I've looked at, I'm, I was shocked when I discovered that you could actually turn family into an idol. It, it, it caught me by surprise. And what really caught me by surprise as a young pastor was that it wasn't the peripheral families who came to church once in a while that tended to suffer from this. It was families that were very involved in the church and used systems of the church and situations in the church to kind of buffer the weird family dynamic and dysfunction they were living with. It might be a control misfunction. It might be something else, but it was very, very interesting to observe. And I just want to say, folks, just take a quick look at yourself and say, God, nothing else needs to be an idol. There, there's, there's, there's a great new song out called Clear the Stage by Jimmy Needham. I highly recommend it. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Spotify. Give it a listen. The lyrics remind us that just about anything can become an idol. In this day and age, music, ambition, nationalism, family, yes, family, can become an idol. And despite the simple promises that some preachers and pseudo-Christian organizations and PR campaigns make, the fact remains, traditional family values are insufficient for real happiness and meaning in life. There's only one place to find it. Brothers and sisters, you only find that in Christ. You do not find it in chasing anything else. And part of our blessing of being a multicultural church, folks, is to understand what traditional family values means to different people from different cultures. It varies, doesn't it? What it ought to do for you is make you suspicious that then traditional family values could be the solution for everybody, because it's not. It means different things to different folks, different cultures. That's okay, because Jesus didn't say, believe in traditional family values and you will be saved. He said, come after me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden. I will give you rest for yourselves. That's where we find it. All right, let's close with some good news. And here's the other good news. The good news is better than the bad news. The good news lessons are better. So here's the first piece of good news. God works with weak people. This is particularly good news if you understand that you're a weak person. And the Bible often shows us that the men and women that God continues to work with, the people God continues to show grace to, despite their resistance, despite the failures, despite the ingratitude, He continues to show grace to people. I think one of the great arguments for the inspiration of the Bible is how many weak and fallen people there are in it who are held up as heroes because God brings us through so much stuff. A man-written book would never have all the garbage we see, wouldn't have all the stuff we're seeing. How can the greatest couple in the Bible be a thruple? How is that possible? Because God shows grace. It's at God works with weak people. Jacob, Rachel, Leah, and us. The second piece of good news, God works through weak people. <laughs> like Jacob, the lead actor in the story. And in the history, how God used Laban's trickery to show Jacob his own deceit. He was humbled. His life begins to change. He begins. It wasn't instantaneous. He didn't have a great eureka moment. It didn't solve all his problems. 
It didn't fix everything in his relationship and the suffering of Leah, but it started a process in Jacob, and he becomes a different man by the end. Let me say this to everybody in the room. You can only start where you are. Jacob was a wreck, but God started with him where he was. And you may be sitting here today, and you may be thinking you're a wreck, or you may be thinking the person seated beside you is a wreck, (laughs) you know? They can only start where they are. You can only start where you are. And all of us need God's grace. God works through weak people. And here's the weird deal. The Labans in our lives, the people who are doing those kinds of things that, that are intent, it's not that we're supposed to copy them, but we can, we can learn from them. The Bible gives us grace again and again and again. Why does God think about it this way? Why does God give us a story about somebody like Jacob who messes up again and again and again in spite of all he's been given, every opportunity he's had, he messes up, messes up, messes up, and God continues to give him grace over and over and over again when he doesn't even deserve it. Why would that be in the Bible? Because that's us. That's us, people. That's us. We are like Jacob. We keep messing up, and God keeps showing grace. Why? Because he loves us so. His history is working through weak people. Last piece of good news. God works in weak people. In weak people. I I talked to you earlier about how Leah gave all these names to her children. All of them use the name of God in it. The Lord, Yahweh. But when you see it in English, it says the Lord, Yahweh. She, she, she has God present. She's thinking about it. She's not quite got him in charge, but she's thinking about it. After the birth of each son, then she finally comes to the birth of Judah. This time, I will praise the Lord. Years of dissatisfaction, disappointment, and pain, and unmet expectations, and now Leah finally understands that her true blessing, her greatest satisfaction, the greatest love she will ever know would not come from Jacob. It would not come from any other man, but it comes from God himself. And God is not unmoved by her realization, because this is the coolest part of the story to me. This one who was considered ugly, unlovable, um, a mess, suffered so much unfair discrimination, disappointment, unmet expectations, loneliness, hurt, and pain. God chooses her, the rejected and ugly sister, to do what? To carry the seed of the Messiah because her last son is Judah. You remember one of the names for Jesus, don't you? The Lion of Judah. Doesn't mean the the, the region. He's the Lion of Judah. He's descended from Judah, son of Leah, spouse of Jacob grandson of Abraham. This is the line of the Messiah comes through Leah. And so I just, I'm reading this story and I'm thinking, we need to hear again. God, by his grace and love, we are so blessed people. And we need to wake up to what God is doing, has done, 
and will do because of his great love, his great mercy, and his great grace. The greatest lesson we get from the greatest couple, messed up, imperfect people as they were, what we learn from this is don't look to anyone but the Messiah to fulfill your greatest longings because everything else is imperfect and falls short. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for these lessons that were purchased for us, preserved for us through the pain of others. We can't think about this story and not be incredibly moved by what Leah suffered. And we have to put it this way, oh God, on our behalf. She was an instrument of your work on our behalf. Through her, you gave the Messiah, your son, for our sin, for our salvation, for our forgiveness, and we are grateful. God, help us, those of us who are married or are in relationships with folks, and we think we'd, we'd like to be stronger, we'd like to be a better couple, help us in that pursuit. God, I believe you're all about that. But help us to learn today, understanding that there are positive and negative lessons to be learned, and that what we need to do above all else is keep Jesus at the center of it all. That's where we find our satisfaction. As much as we may love our spouse, our significant others, those who have meant so much to us in life, you are the source of our greatest love. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, the one who is that very gift of love. Amen.